Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lipstick will move from Shanghai port to Prince Rupert port. And then it'll load onto the rail, and then it'll come into Toronto. Audrey Ross is the import and export compliance manager at Orchard Custom Beauty. She spends her time making sure lipsticks and beauty powders and and all sorts of products make it from factory floors to customers around the world. The past two years haven't been easy.、Uh, it's it's been a bit chaotic. It's、uh, it's probably been the hardest I've had to work in this industry in my life. She's had to deal with increasing shipping times. So you went from you know thirty five days, five weeks coming into Canada, and now you're at. It's,、uh, it's hard to say actually right now. I couldn't even tell you. It's about eight weeks, nine weeks. I don't know. Hoping for nine. And increasing prices. They just jumped. I mean, we went all of a sudden from this this sort of usual price, and it's like. It's not seven thousand anymore. It's now fifteen thousand or sixteen thousand,、um, and one of them. I'm so like I don't even want to admit how much I paid for it. I stayed under thirty thousand, which I am proud of. Ships that lose their cargo from fall twenty twenty into twenty twenty one was like a bang up year for losing containers off of the vessels.、Um, I think they lost more in a period between November twenty twenty and March twenty twenty one than they'd lost in the previous twenty years. And ships that. Spontaneously catch fire. So there was a, a couple of sections of the vessel that were just the containers were on fire. They had dangerous goods in them, and I happened to catch it on Twitter that it had happened. If you're, you know, sort of in my position, you take vessel names and you put them into your Outlook <laughs> to see. You're like, do I have stuff on this? Hopefully not.、I'm、crossing my fingers, and I did.、Um, and then you have to wait. So now the vessel's on fire. Some of the containers have fallen off. It ended up being more than a hundred containers off the boat. Is it mine? How long is it going to take for the recovery process of putting out the fire, it docking, the goods coming off?、Um, and it takes quite a while, as it turns out. But the problem is that it was a very specific holiday item. So these are little snowman sponges. I think another one of the other skews was little reindeer.、Um, and so my goods turn up in sort of middle of February. A couple of containers full of goods that I can't sell, so it was—they're、uh, sitting in the warehouse right now. It's great. All of this might have been fine for a few months, but it's June 2022, more than two years after the first COVID lockdowns, and lots of people like Audrey are still pulling their hair out. And you just feel like this—this this total broken record of. Where is it? What's going on? Like the kid in the back seat. Where is it? Did it get there yet? Is it there yet? Is it there yet?、Um, and that just became my whole life. You are listening to Money Talks from the Economist, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Smeya Keynes, and I'm Mike Bird, and I'm Alice Fullwood. Finally back from my honeymoon. And in today's episode, what is still wrong with global supply chains? We're asking how much longer the pain is going to last. It's going to take a matter of months, not a matter of weeks, to get back to normal. 
and we'll speak to some of the startups raising millions to help fix the problem. Through the pandemic, a lot of companies have realized um, the sheer potential of digitalization in supply chains. Like it's a massive market and the level of digitalization in the market and the average in terms of customer value proposition is still very much in the early days. We'll look at what's really changing for companies. Supply chains are really, really sticky. It's very hard to make these kind of moves and the different costs and benefits that companies are weighing are tricky. It's not a straightforward decision. And we'll ask, what does all of this turmoil mean for how products get made and get shipped around the world? Now, before we get into the supply chains, hi Alice, welcome back. Yeah, we missed you, not just because it's more difficult to uh, interview people in US time zones while you're away, not just because of that. We, we missed you genuinely. Uh, well, I'm very happy to be back. As nice as it was to, uh, you know, be at my wedding and on my honeymoon, I am thrilled to be back recording with the two of you, the other loves of my life. Well, Alice, the feeling is mutual and we are particularly glad that you're back now that the S&P has officially dipped into bear market territory. Um, Separately, I'm going to need to have a quick chat to you about my crypto investments. Yeah, selfishly, I'm thrilled at how the markets have performed in my absence because between about the 1st of June and Friday, they went nowhere. And now they've absolutely created for my return. So it's really handy. Uh, Sorry about your crypto it doesn't look good. That's the advice. Right. Let's save Samaya's crypto for another episode. This week, Samaya, you took the lead looking at your old beat on trade. That is right. We are going to hear from our colleague Charlotte Howard in a little bit. She has spent weeks reporting out our cover story this week with Callum Williams. They're looking at supply chains and trying to see just what has been changing since 2020. If you're one of those sort of needy people that, you know, tried to buy anything from abroad in the last two and a half years or so, you might have noticed that there's been quite a lot of difficulty going on. Yeah. Well, before we get to the changes that are happening, I thought it might be good just to get the lay of the land of how bad things are at the moment. Yes, let's start with the worst possible news. Exactly. I called up an old contact of mine, Chris Rogers, who is now the principal supply chain economist at Flexport. It's a logistics startup that was recently valued north of $8 billion. Chris, hello. Hello. Let's start off with talking about uh, some of the disruption that, that you're seeing out there. So to what extent are supply chains still messed up? And have there been different phases of the disruption? So are they still messed up? Yes, we can see that. We have a measure at Flexport we call the Ocean Timeliness Indicator or OTI. And that basically measures how long it takes to get from when cargo is ready to be picked up in Asia to when it's delivered into Uh, North America or into Europe. Um, Back before the uh, pandemic, that was around 50 days. Um, In late 2020, that went up to about 70 days. During 2021, towards the end of the year, it went up to 100 days. And it's still at around about that sort of level. It, it, It kind of picked up at the beginning of 2022, and then it's come down a little bit since. So, so we've had a couple of phases. And, and those phases of increase have pretty much come at the same time as the peak shipping season. So remember, most people buy their things in America or in Europe um, during the uh, autumn and into the winter. So we've got that peak season. And, and it's those sequential peak seasons that have caused the problems. Has it ever been better? Did, 
did it did it ever look like for a minute that things might be getting better or has it just been getting progressively worse and worse? Um, I think it, it's been getting progressively worse over time. So what will normally happen is you know, you'll have the big burst of supply chain activity to feed that winter peak. And then during the first quarter of the year, everything calms down, everything gets reset, all the boats get maintained, all the boxes go back to where they're meant to be. But we didn't get those rest periods. And, you know, we didn't get it in 2020 because of uh, the pandemic, obviously. We didn't get it in 2021, partly because there was still a lot of people being sick. That took capacity out of the system. And, of course, demand for, for a lot of consumer goods was was quite high. And then at the beginning of 2022, we didn't get that uh, relaxation again, you know, because of these disruptions we've seen, uh, particularly in Asia, again, linked to the pandemic. Could you talk a bit more about the factors driving these increases in ocean times? Yeah, so I think if you split it between kind of the, the demand side and the supply side, I think on the supply side, what you're dealing with in the case of ocean was kind of fixed capacity. So the port, you can't build a new port overnight, you can't order a new boat overnight. What was causing a problem was the availability of the people part of it. So, you know, because people were getting sick, obviously, that had an impact on ports that are not automated. Um, that's a lot of ports in the US and some parts of, of Europe, less so in Asia, there's a lot more automation in Asia, uh, but also around trucking and warehousing. So uh, particularly on the trucking side, there's been a, a shortage of uh, available drivers. And that's partly a, a long term systemic issue. It's a frankly miserable job. Um, on the demand side, there are a lot of different factors in there. But I think you know, companies have found it harder to predict customer spending patterns, both within the year and year to year. Also, a lot of the stuff that we were all buying during the pandemic and even more recently are large consumer durables. And as a consequence of that, these are things that take up a lot more space on the logistics network per pound or dollar of spending than, than other products. So there was kind of an outsized um, impact. I think for most people, the pandemic will be remembered as a time of misery. And, and for economists, they'll remember it as a time for, for durables. Um, so in my case, a treadmill. Um, but in other people's cases, uh, you know, new couch, new sofa, new uh, TV, something like that. Um, I'm interested in all of these complaints that I've been hearing from companies about supply chain problems. It feels like it's the thing that one blames for everything right now. Are there any cases where it's just being used as this catch-all scapegoat? Yeah, I think it's um, we've seen throughout the past kind of couple of decades as company earnings calls and contact with the press has become more important that whenever there's a problem in the corporate financials, there needs to be an explanation and the explanation needs to be something that's, you know, of the moment. And yeah, we've certainly seen during the pandemic a lot more discussion about supply chains. So if we look at the corporate earnings calls that were happening um, over the past three months or so, so during the, the kind of April to, to June period, around 40% of companies were talking about supply chain as being an issue. That was similar to what it was in, in the fourth quarter of last year, which makes sense because like during the peak season, your supply chain really, really matters. During the second quarter, it shouldn't matter that much. But the fact it's still being talked about shows that it's still very much an issue. Uh, for context, um, before the pandemic, so 2019 and, and earlier, only about 5% of companies even talked about their supply chain. So you know, supply chain is something you can kind of hang your hat on as being, this is why we were having 
problems. We've also seen a resurgence recently in companies talking about the impact of lockdowns um, and you know, specifically kind of factories in Asia. Um, and funnily enough, the number of companies who are talking about lockdowns is higher in the past quarter than it was in the second quarter of 2020 when like stuff place people were actually locked down globally. So you know that that temptation to point at issues and say that's what's hurting us is is there. Okay, well, supply washing aside, there are clearly still bottlenecks. I mean, how much do you think of what we're seeing now is still a temporary shock? Do you think that things are going to go back to how they were before the pandemic? There's a lot of different parts in supply chain planning that could or should change. There's a difference to, of course, what should change and what will change. I think the things that are going to be persistent are this move to the digitization of supply chains and decision making. So that investment in technology, and and that's a long arc thing, right? A lot of companies have been talking about doing that for five years. It takes a couple of years to implement. It'll take a couple more years before the majority of companies have really got their supply chain operations and planning on a proper digital uh, basis. The other part of it, of course, is the physical side and saying, like, what level of inventories do we need to hold? What shipping networks do we need to use? And Within that, there's a trade-off between cost and risk. If we are heading into a period where demand is starting to fall, making a case to say, I want to spend a whole lot of money on keeping much higher inventories and uh, lots of investments in risk management like uh, multi-sourcing or multi-shoring. My concern is, like as business begins to normalise, people go, oh, OK, that was a bit of a fever dream. Let's get back to where we were three years ago in terms of how we run our supply chains from a physical perspective, if not from a, a digital perspective. Do you have a sense of of timing on this? So when might the end of the fever dream occur? Um, I guess, you know, when might those absurdly long times it's taking to, to get stuff from A to B, when might those really start to shrink back to normal? So I think the first part to say is it's part of when demand starts to come down. For the system to recover, you need to stop ramming stuff in the in the top of it. Remember, we didn't go from like 40 or 50 days shipping to 100 days shipping overnight. It took two years to get there. It won't necessarily take as long to get back, but it's going to take a matter of months, not a matter of weeks to, to get back to normal. And as a consequence of which, you know, we're certainly expecting to see continued congestion on the system through the end of 2022. And you know, hopefully, if we have this discussion in a year's time, so in the middle of 2023, hopefully, It'll all be sorted out by then. Chris, it has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so it's nice to get these things ahead of time. I guess we can pencil in the subject of our June 2023 podcast now. Yes, it's great to bone up on a topic we know we'll be talking about forevermore, basically. And once a supply chain nerd, always a supply chain nerd. So there will be no regrets from me. After the break... We are going to look at how these bottlenecks have changed the way companies are thinking about their supply chains. But before then, if you want to read our cover story looking at how this issue fits in with broader questions being raised about globalisation, might I suggest a subscription to The Economist? We'll also be breaking down the lessons from this week's FOMC meeting. The US Federal Reserve hiked interest rates again, given those surprising CPI numbers from last week. Yes, prices in America are still rising much too fast and our colleague Henry Kerr is going to 
have a go at telling Jerome Powell what to do in this week's issue. Yep, Jay, if you're listening, you can get a great introductory offer at economist.com slash podcast offer. And if you're already a subscriber, you can sign up to our newsletter at economist.com slash newsletters. Both those links are in the notes for this episode. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now, there are a few things that Chris mentioned that he did think changed and that would perhaps lead to faster shipping times or at least more accurate ones uh, coming up in the future. Right. One of them is digitization. A lot of the bits of the supply chain that's getting the powders, ordinary manufacturers from the factory in Shenzhen to the port onto the shipping container, offloaded at the port on the other end before getting loaded onto a train. A lot of those bits of the supply chain are a bit clunky. Today, if you engage with traditional freight forwarding company, very often you basically will communicate via email, ask for a price for a 40-foot container shipment from Shanghai, let's say, to Rotterdam, with then the trucking transport from the port after customs are cleared to the final warehouse. You will then basically receive a PDF with a quote, you respond on that, and the entire communication and updates are solely happening over email, potentially with a couple of phone calls and um, finished with the cherry on the cake as an Excel spreadsheet at the end of the week to track the progress of your shipments. Michael Wax is the co-founder and CEO of Forto, a freight forwarding company. It's one of nearly a dozen private firms that have recently become unicorns, valued at more than $1 billion. The big difference between that and Forto is that as a Forto client today, you access the system you request your price online. Now you can do that for an ocean freight, an air freight, a rail freight shipment, including all the ancillary services like customs processing, on carriage transport, um, potential insurances that you may want to purchase. You get directly the price. Uh, you have a, a, a vast uh, transparency on the different options that are available. You can book it and then you can manage all those shipments through this platform collaboratively with your colleagues, no matter where they are placed around the world. 24-7 in a cloud-based system. Great. Okay, so it's not that the old system wasn't digital. There were, there were emails, right? It was happening through the internet. It was just a very inefficient way of, of managing the process. Um, you co-founded the company in 2016. You, you've been in this game for a while. Can we talk about the pandemic and, and the response? I mean, what about the, the response to that massive shock in 2020 surprised you most? So I think um, the biggest factor was every company, all of our customers have shifted supply chain as a topic in the boardroom from like a housekeeping topic and something where costs have to be decreased all the one to like all the way to like a top three priority. Like what happened like 10, 15 years ago in the industry, the main buying criteria was price. Yeah? Supply chains are a hygiene criteria. 
as in like warehouses need to be on stock, but it was like shipping capacity was available uh, abundantly. Yeah? And, and now with COVID, what happened for the first time in a long period was that supply of shipping capacity was constrained because demand was growing so quickly. And so what we saw with clients is that the ability that they expect from themselves to be resilient in that area of the business has massively increased. Let's talk about your valuation. I mean, in, in March, you raised money from investors that put Forto's valuation north of $2 billion. I mean, how much of that interest do you think came essentially off the back of the pandemic? Well, I think that through the pandemic, a lot of companies have realized um, the sheer potential of digitalization in supply chains. Like it's a massive market and the level of digitalization in the market and the average in terms of customer value proposition is still very much in the early days. Um, so when we founded the company in 2015, 2016, that was roughly like two or $3 billion that were f- like flowing into logistics technology in a year. Like last year was more than 20. Yeah? And so this acceleration shows you that I think much more investors have been realizing the potential. Much more investors do see the industry ripe for a change right now. Yeah? It always requires kind of like a mind shift also of an ecosystem. And I think there's now first great examples, and we hope to be one of them with Forto, that also indicate um, the benefits the supply chain has for customers. And, and this is why, obviously, we're now um, super well financed and, and capitalized to further develop our systems, to um, work massively on the expansion of our business and uh, continue to delivering a great part to our clients. Michael, thank you so much. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. So as the sort of person who really loves to have all of my information sent to me in PDFs and Excel spreadsheets, I can see why this might be helpful in general, but maybe in particular for unclogging supply chains. Yeah. Although Audrey, who we heard from at the start of the show, told me that while she did think digitization could help Orchard, she just doesn't have enough people to spare to get trained up to learn all these new ways of booking in their orders. We're not a large shipper, but we're and we're, you know, it's just sort of two people on this team. Supply chain has had just a huge increase in logistics technology. And if you're a person like me, it's just been a challenge to get some of it rolled out or implemented because you're you're all of a sudden have this increased workload that was sort of unexpected. So for me, it's been, that's been the challenges is the, the implementation. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear her perspective on this. I guess investment and new technology seem like a panacea to some of these problems, but it's not always that simple. There are still challenges. Yeah, you can have technological development, but adoption really matters. And, and that sometimes doesn't go very smoothly. Now, digitization is a pretty small part of how companies are shaking up the way that they think about supply chains. Right. And some of these bigger changes, they predate the pandemic, but they've been sort of accelerated because of the difficulties that companies have been under the last couple of years. Yeah, exactly. Now, should we bring in Charlotte, given that she's been looking into this? Yes, let's do that. Charlotte, we've just heard how messed up supply chains still are for makeup, cars, other things. And we've heard about some of the changes that all of this disruption has prompted, like more digitization. Uh, That's what made Forto millions of dollars from investors. Now, You've spent the past few weeks looking at supply chains for this week's briefing. 
What do you think has been changing as a result of this prolonged period of of disruption? And and here I'm really thinking of changes since the pandemic started, since the beginning of 2020. Well, it's interesting because, as you know from covering trade, people have been rumbling on about changes to supply chains for a long time, right? Particularly after the Trump administration's trade war with China began, there have been talk about moving supply chains out of China and some kind of new system. And what we've seen just in the past two years is that some of that talk is actually becoming action in a way that it wasn't before. And so that's in part because the pandemic exposed that designing supply chains purely to be efficient is not prudent and that you create unforeseen inefficiencies by by just focusing on cost. But it's also because some of the forces that predated uh, the pandemic have become more obvious in the extent of their risk. So if you think about the trade rift with China, Biden has not done anything really to change the Trump administration's course on that. If anything, relations with China have continued to deteriorate. Climate risks have become more apparent. And of course, then Russia's invasion of Ukraine really underlined how dangerous it is to be over-dependent on particular suppliers. And so when you add all of these things up, you see companies taking a variety of steps, which include digitization, but they include all sorts of other things, shifting patterns of investment, hoarding inventories, uh, and in some cases, vertical integration, moving factories, not just within borders, but to countries that are nearby or countries that are perceived to be more safe. And the pace of this really varies from one sector to the next, but it is underway. Can you give us some more specific examples of, of that going on? Are there specific companies that you can you can tell us about? You see this, for example, playing out with Apple, which is pushing suppliers to reduce their concentration within China. You also see this, of course, with the semiconductor industry, where it's been really dramatic because the supply chain problems have been so acute, where you have companies making enormous announcements of investments of new factories in America, in Europe. Uh, I would also put batteries and car makers in this as well, where you see companies investing uh, further up the supply chain than they had before, in some cases even supporting development of new mines in order to secure access to critical minerals. And our colleague Simon Wright has written about that in this week's issue as well. How much of this relocation do you think is firms responding to government pressure or government intervention, right? The US government has been fairly vocal in its desire for semiconductor fab to be built on on the US mainland. Um, To what extent is this companies responding to risk or just responding to politicians? I think it's both. So I think that there were clear shortcomings in the semiconductor supply chain that were exposed over the past two years. So that is undoubtedly true. It is also undoubtedly true that when governments are throwing around cash, companies are happy to hoover it up. Yeah, we saw some of this in Asia last year. There was a a long-running Toshiba factory in Dalian, which was closed down, and Toshiba was moving some of its production to other parts of Asia, and there were Japanese government subsidies involved in this. But honestly, I mean, it, it always really seems with those big decisions, like a very large part of this is cost based. So if you have operations, if you're an Asian company and you've got operations on the eastern or southeastern coast of China, the wage costs in particular of those things has just gone, you know, it's it's gone through the roof in the past 20 years and the the amount of time that factory has been open. So it it makes a lot of commercial sense as well. Even the companies that are taking the subsidies, a lot of this time it seems to be just a sort of, it's an added marginal benefit, but it's mostly an economic decision that they're making in, in some cases. Yeah, I think that's really important to underscore that this isn't 
like companies are sitting in their headquarters and saying, hmm, I wonder what would be good for America. They're thinking about what's good for their next quarterly earnings and increasingly, you know, three, four years, five years down the line, thinking about long-term resilience and long-term competitive advantage. So the reason why car makers are making these big changes is they're chasing Tesla. Tesla has an extremely vertically integrated model, right? And so car makers are making these types of bets because they think it's good for their business, not because they're trying to serve some protectionist patriotic duty. And I think one of the demonstrations of that, certainly in sort of mainland Southeast Asia, is if you look at like Cambodia or or Laos or even Vietnam, it's Chinese companies making this move as well. You know, Chinese companies invest in those places, they open factories in those places precisely because their own wage costs are considerably higher than they used to be. So it's it's not just a, a sort of single issue geopolitical thing, um, which, you know, I, I, I think people understand that to be the case. But I think you're completely right to emphasize the fact that there are very few corporate execs as patriotic as they might be that sit at home and think, what can I do for America today, even if it goes, you know, flying in the face of everything my shareholders would prefer. And this doesn't mean that all production comes back within a given country's border. It does not mean that we're returning to kind of domestic walled economies. What it does mean, however, is that you do have suppliers who are moving closer by, suppliers who are moving to to Southeast Asia, to Mexico. There's a huge uh, industrial park in Monterey that is filled entirely with Chinese suppliers. So it's not like this is happening and Chinese companies remain within China and other companies start spreading out. It's a system that continues to be truly global. It is just being redrawn. Um, I want to ask a, a fairly big picture question. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, the shock hit and some people wailed, oh dear, globalization is over. Uh, you know, we're we're one step away from autarky. Look at all these export restrictions. This is this is a new new kind of risk. Um, there are going to be dramatic changes. And then on the other side, you had those who were saying, look, supply chains are really sticky. There are really powerful reasons why these things are set up in the way that they are. They're very difficult to move. And so really, this is all overblown, right? As soon as companies get pressure from shareholders to cut costs, all of this talk about high inventories, that that kind of thing, that that's going to go away. And so this chatter about resilience is really short term and really we're just going to go back to the way things were. Charlotte, where do you fall between those two extremes? Well, I definitely don't fall in the former camp that this is the beginning of deglobalization because supply chains, as they shift, remain global. We're not moving to a fully 100% protectionist world with autarkies. There's no evidence that that is underway. On the second point, however, I agree that supply chains are really, really sticky. It's very hard to make these kind of moves. And the different costs and benefits that companies are weighing are tricky. It's not a straightforward decision. However, I would say that this is underway. So inventory hoarding, that has been pretty persistent and it's obvious. That's a short-term fix though. And I think what you want to look to instead are patterns of foreign direct investment, not just purchasing a company overseas, but greenfield, what they call greenfield foreign direct investment. So putting steel in the ground. You want to look at new supplier relationships, new types of vertical integration within certain sectors. I think that there is pretty clear evidence, particularly in some sectors, that this is moving ahead. 
Okay, so with the the acknowledgement that things are, are sort of still pretty messed up at the moment in terms of supply chains, um, are these changes ultimately a good thing? Do you think? We think? Do we think that they'll lead to improvements? Do we think that they'll lead to a better sort of system than maybe we had before the pandemic? Well, it's a really interesting question. I think the answer varies by sector. I think there were clear shortcomings of the old system, that you're too dependent on a particular supplier, that you can really have one event that throws your entire supply chain into chaos. That's not a resilient, good system. I think, though, however, that most of these changes will involve some higher cost, right? And so the question is, who bears it? Are government subsidizing sectors? Are consumers paying more? Are the profit margins of companies going to decline? So I don't want to pretend like these are all things that are going to be unilaterally beneficial. There's a reason why supply chains evolved as they did. And as you move away from that, it's going to be both a bit messy and costly. Yeah, I think it's a really nice point to think of this, as Charlotte said, as, uh, you know, that it actually tells you that the old system isn't as efficient as maybe people thought in the sense that when I think about these things, I'm always thinking, how can we get back to that? And actually, the, the fact that this happened demonstrates the problems that were there the whole time. And that maybe we had like a particularly lucky stretch where, you know, you had things like floods in Thailand or the, the earthquake in Japan that were seriously disruptive, but they weren't disruptive on a sort of persistent global scale. But it really does. It really does show that um, if, if this can happen, then maybe we don't want to go back to the old system. Um, yeah, so that's interesting. That sort of changed the way I think about things. Charlotte, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Hopefully see you soon. Great. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you both. I always feel smarter having listened to what Charlotte has to say on these things. But I guess what I really took away from her discussion is just how complex the decisions companies are having to make one they're thinking about how to arrange their supply chains. Obviously, they're taking into account sort of costs and then all of these new industrial policies and other pressures. And it does just seem like a really impossible thing for them to get right. Yeah, I think I often think about this from a sort of macro perspective where you see the the exports leave in a certain amount of data and you see the imports arrive and you don't really think about the in-between, right? They're just sort of magically teleported from one port to another and yeah, it's sort of, uh, it's really fascinating listening to much more of the sort of nitty gritty of what's going wrong. Well, you know me, I love trade, can always listen to people uh, yammer on about it. Um, should we talk about our stats now? Yes, absolutely. Great. Okay, Alice, you've, you've been away for a while. What do you got? Yes, I'm very excited to be back doing my stat of the week again. Uh, this week, I was most intrigued by one of the figures from the CPI report, which was that egg prices are up 32% year on year. Um, they're one of the components that has pushed the cost of groceries and food that people eat at home to sort of all time highs. Um, so the cost of uh, food at home rose 11.9% on the year in the inflation data on Friday. And interestingly, it rose much, much quicker than the cost of food in restaurants. Um, apparently, the gap between the cost to eat at home and the cost to eat in restaurants was the widest it's been since uh, the 70s, according to JP Morgan. Earlier today, I learned a really fun fact, which is that raw egg is one of the very few foods that you cannot freeze. Um, if you try and freeze a raw egg in its shell, it will go very, very badly wrong. Um, and I found that out because I was trying to come up with a lead for my piece about the British labour market, which sets up my stat, because 
essentially during the pandemic, the government froze the labour market in place. And now now it's thawed. The question is what's gone wrong and what's gone right. And one of the things that's gone wrong is that older people seem to have withdrawn from the labour force. So if you look at the change in the employment rate between the beginning of the pandemic and now in Britain, it's fallen by 1.8 percentage points, which is a weirdly high number compared to other countries. So among OECD members, it's only fallen by 0.3 percentage points. And so I've been trying to think about why this might be happening. One of the potential explanations is that Brits are particularly likely to, to draw down their pension. They have easier access to their pension wealth than in other countries. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a mystery. So uh, I can't be the only person that's going to immediately head to the freezer to put an egg in there to find out what happens. Um, Just to make clear, we bear absolutely no responsibility for whatever the consequences of that are. Any of you do it, it is literally nothing. Don't tell people it was us. Um, Yeah, nothing to do with us. I assume you were going to say you couldn't be the only person who's going to run to withdraw their wealth from their pension. I was going to strongly advise you against doing that, Mike. (laughs) Well, thank thank you, Alice. Thank you. No, I'm going to go blow up an egg in the freezer or, or however this works. Um, my statistic is not egg related. Um, it is negative 68%. That figure refers to the number of truck movements in and out of South Korea's ports relative to the average level in May. And it's down so much because there is a South Korean trucker strike going on. And I thought it was an interesting stat because it shows just how much the current inflation and supply chain issues are sort of feeding on each other now. The protests, the, the strikes are all about the cost of fuel and about wages not keeping up with them. That in turn is having knock-on effects for other industries. You've already seen shipments of uh, isopropyl alcohol not getting to semiconductor supply manufacturers. So you'll see this sort of horrible feeding on itself knock-on effects, you know, maybe not in the scale of the 1970s, but it's really the the same sort of dynamics that we're seeing even if it's on a much smaller scale um i found that one pretty interesting so on brand mike you've come to the supply chains episode with a supply chain stat congratulations never knowingly off brand anyway our thanks this week go to audrey ross chris rogers and michael wax and thank you for listening to money talks don't forget to rate and review us on apple podcasts or wherever you listen and you can always write in with your stats just for me if you remember at podcast at economist.com. This week's episode was produced by Stevie Hertz. Our sound engineer is Nico Ralfast. Our editor is Kim Gittleson. I'm Alice Fullwood. And I'm Mike Bird. And I'm Samaya Keynes. And this is The Economist. 